self-awareness and self-acceptance tend to be very highly correlated. And the difference between self-acceptance and uh, self-esteem is in self-acceptance, you you love and appreciate the person you are, warts and all, rather than saying, I'm the best, I'm the most deserving, I'm the smartest, regardless of what's actually happening. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, where every episode we feature a best-selling author or world-renowned thought leader all in the name of helping you elevate your leadership impact. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz. And I wanna thank our season sponsor, PowerEd. PowerEd is an award-winning division of Athabasca University who partners with organizations looking for impactful online learning solutions. Their on-demand online offerings include leadership, project management, artificial intelligence ethics, digital transformation, embracing allyship and inclusion, and digital wellness. Check out the team from Athabasca University at athabascau.ca. Well, here's a stat that's going to floor you. 95% of people believe they are self-aware, and yet according to research, only 10 to 15% actually are. So what gives? Well, I'm going to be joined today by Dr. Tasha Yurik, who's an organizational psychologist, researcher, and New York Times best-selling author. Her life's work is to help people be the best of who they are and what they do. Having built her reputation as a candid yet compassionate voice in the self-improvement space, Tasha pairs her scientific grounding in human behavior with a pragmatic approach to personal development. Tasha's TED Talks have been viewed over 9 million times, and I've been aware of Tasha for quite some time, and she joins me today to discuss her most recent book, Insight, delving into the connection between self-awareness and success. And Adam Grant calls it one of the three books he recommends most often. If you know anything about me, you know that's going to get me to read it in a hurry. Tasha, welcome to Unleashed. Thank you. It's so great to be here. So this is a, uh, this is a topic that I am just so uh, fascinated about, and I cannot wait to dig into this a little bit more with you. And I thought a, a place where I would, wouldn't mind starting was as far as I understand, you have you spent the better part of four years of your life researching self-awareness. And I couldn't help but wonder, like, what was it about self-awareness that captivated you so much that you wanted to spend so much time learning about it? Great starting question. And uh, I, I feel even older, uh, but now it's been almost 10 years <laughs> that my team and I have been looking into this. But my, my background is as an organizational psychologist, very passionate organizational psychologist. And I've been working with uh, usually C-level executives in mid to large size companies for uh, more than 20 years now. And throughout my entire career, what I kept seeing over and over was a, a distinct pattern. And to boil it down, there were two types of executives. There was the first type of executive who was, you know, kind of trucking along, doing pretty well, not overly concerned with their own growth and development, but, you know, it kind of read a little bit and, and, and just tried to do the best they could given how stressed they were and how much was coming at them. There was a second type of executives that I was especially interested in uh, who actively were committed to working on their self-awareness. And oftentimes that's when my clients hire me um, and that's what I nerd out on. So it works perfectly. But these were leaders who were not satisfied with what they already knew about themselves or even the assumptions they made about who they were and how they were seen. And they didn't necessarily have to spend, you know, inordinate amounts of time working on their self-awareness. But, uh, you know, with my partnership, basically, I saw the first group of executives, you know, steady state, not incredibly happy, not as fulfilled as they could be. And then I saw these self-awareness committed leaders just in that second group achieve, you know, sometimes more than they ever thought was possible and feel fulfilled doing it. And this was rattling around in my mind for many, many years until, uh, again, about 10 years ago, I started to see a lot of articles popping up about self-awareness, you know, in, in magazines and business publications and HR publications. But I started to wonder, you know, I had seen this anecdotally. I was reading all these articles. It was a buzzword, clearly. 
But what was the science behind self-awareness? Did we really know what it is, where it comes from, why we need it, how to get more of it? And so I convened a research team. Uh, this was like towards the end of the year during the holidays. And you know, I had a little time on my hands. And we started what I thought would be maybe a one or two year research program to dive into some of these questions. We, we surveyed people from all around the world. Uh, we did very in-depth interviews of people who didn't start out as self-aware, but who became self-aware. And um, it ended up being just kind of uh, one of my lifelong passions. There were so many surprises in what we discovered that were so different from you know what all those articles had been saying that I sort of now see my job uh, among other things. But you know one of the mo most important things I do is I help the world become more self-aware, myself included. <laughs> and so that Got just it. kicked off you know a, a, a passion, a lifelong passion. Yes, absolutely. Now, I, I want to share some things that have actually happened in my life in the last seven days, and I want to, and I want to get your perspective as to whether or not these are examples of where self-awareness could be helpful or, or come into play, and then we can kind of define self-awareness. Now, Love one it. of the situations is there was, there's a guy at my local gym, and it's not the first time it has happened, but anytime I'm working out close to him, he has really bad breath, and I'm just like, boy, if he just knew about this, how might that change? Does he know about this? Another thing that happened is, you know, that, you know, when somebody offers you some gum or a mint and they're probably just being polite, but it triggers like, oh my goodness, do I have bad breath? Like I'm, I'm wondering <laughs> about that myself. And then here's something else that happened at Costco just the other day is I was uh, about to go and get a sample and this sweet woman uh, came up beside me and I was like, you know what, you, why don't you go ahead of me? And so she goes ahead of me and she takes not one but two samples. And it was the last two that were there. So I'm just like, whoa, like this has got to be an example where she is just lacking in self-awareness completely. Like what are, when you, when you talk about self-awareness, how do you define it? And are, are those examples where self-awareness would actually be helpful? I would say, I mean, in some sense, all of them are absolutely examples of uh, self-awareness or lack thereof in the real world. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll come back to the middle one because I think there's some some nuance and interesting uh, elements there. But uh, so it took my research team and I almost a year to empirically define what is self-awareness. So I'm giving this uh, definition to everybody, to all your listeners and watchers as simplicity on the other side of complexity. We did all this work, so you don't have to. But what it boils down to is self-awareness is the will and skill to understand who we are on the inside and how we're seen on the outside. Interestingly, those two types of self-awareness, which we might get to later that I call internal and external, are completely unrelated. And what does that mean practically? It means that we can't rest on our laurels just because we, for example, get a lot of feedback or just because we do a lot of journaling doesn't necessarily mean that it will give us the totality of what self-awareness is and all the benefits that come along with it. So I think starting with that definition is really important because it charts the path for us. Yeah. And so the, the will and skill piece, and, and you, I think you mentioned some of them already, but I mean, what's at, what's at stake here? Like, what are the consequences of not spending, willfully spending time on becoming self-aware? I love that question in the reverse because it hopefully will light a fire under all of us, again, myself included, to keep working on this skill. Uh, one study found, for example, that uh, senior leaders who lack self-awareness are 600% more likely to derail. And, you know, similar results are shown in basically every area of our lives. So if, if we flip it to the positive side, people who are self-aware on average are better performers at work. They get more promotions. They have better, stronger relationships. They're more uh, confident. They're better communicators. They're more affected and respected leaders. And there's even some evidence, uh, you know, for all the business folks on this uh, session that organizations that are made up of large numbers of self-aware employees tend to be more profitable than those who aren't. Uh, 
but the benefits actually uh, follow us home as well. It's it, it life is uh, one big whole. It's not something that is compartmentalized, and so people who are self aware are uh, better partners. They're better friends. They feel more fulfilled in their relationships. They feel more in control of their lives. And then uh, I saved the best one for last. If anyone listening to this is a parent, and particularly for teenage kids, self-aware parents raise more mature, less narcissistic children. <laughs> there is a so huge the benefits, and that's just some right there. That's just some. Yeah, absolutely. Now i I can't. Um, I can't help but think that most of us are walking around thinking there isn't a problem. Like you've talked a lot and, and your Ted talk is phenomenal, by the way. And if, and if folks have not oh, seen it, you. please go and watch Tasha's Ted talk uh, on self-awareness. But in that talk, you mentioned that 95% of the population believe they're self-aware. And yet in reality, only 10 to 15% are what is happening here. What is happening here? <laughs> The joke I always make about those two numbers together is that on a good day, 80% of us are lying to ourselves about whether we're lying to ourselves. And that's when, you know, if I'm speaking to an audience, people start to shift around uncomfortably in their chairs. Um, you know, sort of where does this come from? There, there are two major uh, contributing factors that, that, that I've discovered in my work. The first is that human beings are wired to actually not see themselves particularly clearly. And at first that sounds crazy. Like how could that be our hard wiring? But if you think about, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago plus, when humans were living together in groups of about 100 to 150, we had to survive above all else. And that leads to a lot of the the, uh, behavior where we both withhold feedback from other people and we withhold getting feedback from other people uh, because we don't want to be told that we're about to be voted off the island. And, um, you know, there's also elements, too, about if we focus in, a, in the wrong way on ourselves, which is self-consciousness, but not self-awareness. And I would say the gum thing, the second gum thing might fall into that. Um, it, it can get us overly focused on things that are not going to help us see the big picture. So I, I, I talk about a statistic in my TED talk that you mentioned where I think at any given moment, we're experiencing 6 million unique pieces of information. And our brains evolved to make sense of that world and to, to kind of triage a little bit. So the more, you know, looking within types of behaviors were not as helpful for us. So to me, I think it makes sense, even though it doesn't on the face of it make sense. The second phenomenon is a little bit more recent. And my research team and I call it the cult of self. And yeah. starting in about the 1960s, so boomers, Xers, it's not just us millennials and Gen Zers, uh, there have been small but significant increases in low-level narcissism, which means that we're focusing more on being sort of uh, absorbed with ourselves and focusing less on really seeing ourselves clearly and becoming more self-aware. And that's reinforced by everything from, you know, the self-esteem movement, which is when all this started, to reality TV, to social media. It's sort of all the things you would expect. But again, um, it's it's not something that only younger generations have to worry about. It's it, You might belong to the cult of self and not even know it. Right. Well, and you hit on something that I was really keen to talk uh, with you about today. It, it was this like this rise of self-esteem and the sense of self. And, and one of the things that you have said uh, that, uh, that really caught my attention when it's, it's not low self-esteem, that's the problem. It's high self-esteem. And I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit for me. It's just so fascinating, isn't it? Because it, it, it's it counter is. to everything that we really yeah. grew up believing, uh, you know, almost all of us. So, um, let me define self-esteem. Uh, self-esteem, at least as I see it and many other researchers see it, is having a, you know, a high overall positive regard for ourselves. And then I, I would add, regardless of the objective evidence, and, and that turns out to be the most important sort of element of this definition. 
it was thought for many years, again, you know, starting in the 1960s when this took off, that higher self-esteem led to uh, better performance, better success, um, you know, better lives, being more in control, e- even better relationships. And, and you know, people were tying it, for example, to, to less crime at the societal level. But what wasn't really acknowledged at the time was the the lack of scientific evidence for all of these things. It, it just doesn't exist in the way that it would seem based on how fervent everyone was in the self-esteem movement. There was a psychologist, there is a psychologist who, who started this research in the late 80s and early 90s named Roy Baumeister. And if anyone's curious about this topic, I would say, even though they're academic articles, they are fascinating and surprisingly easy to read. He started to discover that self-esteem is not all it was cracked up to be. And specifically, it actually had the opposite impact. So people who had uh, very high opinions of themselves, regardless of the objective reality, they were less successful. They were worse off psychologically. They showed more anger, more aggression. And that's just a couple of examples. Um, But I think, you know, we've sort of all been sold the self-esteem bill of goods without really being able, able to kick the tires and understand um, what the what the actual impact is. And that's why I yeah. think self-awareness is so important as a, it, it gives us all the benefits we want self-esteem to give us, but it truly delivers them. And, you know, we can maybe talk about this more, but in, in essence, self-awareness and self-acceptance tend to be very highly correlated. And the difference between self-acceptance and uh, self-esteem is in self-acceptance, you you love and appreciate the person you are, warts and all, rather than saying, I'm the best, I'm the most deserving, I'm the smartest, regardless of what's actually happening. So I, I actually think it's a lot easier to practice self-acceptance than it is to practice self-esteem. Well, that makes total sense. And, and I think that's a really great, uh, uh, really great segue, Tasha, for us to now give the audience. I think we built enough tension for change. Anybody that might be listening to this. <laughs> Discomfort. I yeah. Think, well, exactly. Right. And some of the consequences and some of the things that have gone awry and, and might be inf- affecting us in ways that, that, we, that we don't realize those six million pieces of data points coming at us. How does a person then start to become more attuned to self-awareness and what, what would be like some key things that a person should start to do to, to uh, close that gap? So I want to just quickly tell you about one uh, of probably the most fascinating area of our research and then get to, I can give you, you know, two or three specific practical tools to help us all get there. And um, so one of the things we did in our research was since I had seen in my coaching work, you know, unaware or very unaware people dramatically improve their self-awareness. I knew in my bones that it was possible. And what we ended up doing, it took us quite a while. It took us about 18 months was to find 50 people, five zero, who didn't start out as self-aware, but who through some, you know, magical process that we wanted to unlock became remarkably, dramatically more self-aware. And as I mentioned earlier, a lot of what we learned um, directly confronts most of the common wisdom we have about this topic. Uh, We called these people self-awareness unicorns uh, because we were sort of joking that we were worried we wouldn't find any and they were magical creatures, but we did. So we found 50 people and really studied extensively what they were doing differently. Some of these people ha- did not start out as, you know, pretty self-aware. They started out as needing a lot of improvement. People were giving us examples. Uh, you know, my spouse left me abruptly and I literally had no idea they were unhappy. Or I was fired from, you know, my dream job that I had just been promoted to and I had no idea why. I had no idea it was coming. So the, the first thing I'd say before I give the three tips is self-awareness is one of the most learnable skills out there. And, you know, no matter how, where we start, and I guarantee you there are people that have started as less self-aware than we all are, uh, we can get there. So with that, 
the first thing we discovered with this group of people was really a moment that led to a lifelong mindset. And sometimes the moment came after the dramatic examples I just gave you, you know, we would sort of hope that we would all make that decision, but it also came from really kind of mild, innocuous events, like a conversation with a friend or being in a new role or having a life change. And what, what the mindset and decision were is something that, that we named braver, but wiser. And what right. that means is deciding, really making a decision one day that no matter how long the journey is, and by the way, it's lifelong, no matter how challenging it might be, no matter what the commitment is required, it is always better for me to know, to know who I am on the inside from the inside out. And it's always better for me to know how I'm seen. It doesn't mean we're going to change ourselves automatically um, just to suit other people, but I, I still would argue that it's always better to know because once we know, we can choose. So the mindset is something that literally anybody listening to or watching this can immediately kind of come to. And, and hopefully by the end of, of this conversation, we will have convinced you. But that was the, the starting point for all of these journeys. And then the mindset that it leads to in the long term is curiosity. It's like, huh, I just got some feedback that really surprised me and I didn't know it was coming. And, you know, I'm going to think about that. I'm going to give it genuine consideration. Or if I'm unhappy about some aspect of my life, I might say there might be insight there for myself about how I can live a better, happier, more fulfilled life. So that's the first one. Let me stop there. Yeah. Yeah. So now it makes me want to get to the place of, okay, how do we start to have confidence that the way that we view ourselves is accurate or at least more accurate? I know you talked about the inside view and the outside view, but let's start with that inside view. Tasha, if you can share some tips on, on, uh, on how somebody might start to make that a more correct uh, picture. Absolutely. Well, and I would actually, I, I would respectfully alter one of those words because sure. correct has a value judgment to it. Mm, and good, good if stuff. we yeah. can say, if we can say more comprehensive or more data or more holistic, that kind of helps avoid getting down on ourselves about our self-awareness or, or evaluating or judging ourselves. Um, so, and, and I share that because it's from my own personal experience too. <laughs> when I wrote this yeah. book, I thought, oh man, I better get really self-aware. And it, it you know, it, it took effort. Um, yeah. And then, sorry, what was the second piece of, of what so you, it, your question was? Then, then figuring out how do we get a more um, fulsome or wholesome uh, uh, depiction of how others view us? Let's start with the internal side. Uh, what we discovered in our self-awareness unicorns, these people I mentioned a moment ago, was that almost all of them were not spending hours on a therapist's couch every week. Many of them went to therapy, found it helpful, but they weren't sort of at that level where they needed to explore incessantly. What we heard more commonly, and this is the tool, I named it the, the daily check-in. They were spending literally two minutes a day, uh, usually when they were winding down, brushing their teeth, getting ready for bed, asking themselves essentially three questions. So the first question is, what went well today? The second question is, what didn't go so well today? And the third question is, how can I be smarter tomorrow? What's really crucial, I think, about this approach is that it in the way the questions are designed, we don't get sucked in to the rabbit hole of rumination where we're second guessing or overanalyzing our decisions, our choices, our emotions. And it gives us incremental insight. So I might, you know, have had a, an argument with a coworker the day that day. And I could say, you know, that didn't go so well. What can I do to be smarter tomorrow? Maybe I realize in that in that conversation with myself that. I messed up. And to be smarter tomorrow, I actually need to apologize. Not only will that help me better recognize those situations in the future, 
but it's going to improve my relationship with that person, hopefully, unless I've done something, you know, totally unacceptable. Um, and that's where I think you start to see why self-awareness has a ripple effect in not just ourselves, but the the people around us as well. So, so that's the internal tool. Gotcha. Now, I, I'm a big fan of this of this quote, and I think it might have been James Clear uh, that I first saw it, whether he's the one that, that came up with it originally or not. But it's that we know ourselves by our thoughts. Other people know us by our actions and our behaviors. And I think about that quite often. And the way that I've used that, and, and I'd love your advice as, as to whether or not I'm going down the right path or not to be, uh, to, to be using it to become more self-aware, is I will actually replay conversations, discussions, and meetings that I have been in as though I'm a neutral third-party observer. And I will, yep. I'll, I'll think about what I said versus what I was thinking or how I showed up versus how I intended, or maybe what the impact may have been versus what my intention was. And that has been a way for me, I think, to adjust and alter what I need to do differently. And then in a lot of cases, come back to those people and say, hey, and I just did this yesterday with a colleague uh, saying that I regret something that I said in a meeting last week and, and let me explain what was going on. And, and, and I want to, I want to get your perspective on how that landed for you. So that's how to help. Mm. Now, is that, is that along the same lines, Tasha, as, as those, those three questions, or is that something different completely? I think it's it's related, but it's a separate tool. And it, it's one that's supported by quite a bit of research, actually. So in, in psychology, there's a term, it's kind of an academic pedantic term, but the term is meta-perception. Meta-perception is instead of thinking about ourselves as we see ourselves, it's stepping out of ourselves to wonder uh, what would someone who is a third party who has no interest in this interaction think about our behavior? Fascinatingly, at least I think, it's associated with more uh, consistent perceptions with how other people see us. So even just asking that question, what would a neutral third party think about, you know, in your case, the, the interaction you had with that person? Um, doing that is what allows us to get a little closer. But I love what you said because there's two parts to it. It's not just kind of framing it from your standpoint. It's then testing that and seeing how it landed for the other person. Because truthfully, at the end of the day, even though we can try the only way to really improve our, our external self-awareness, knowing how we're seen, is to ask. Yeah, and it, and it did lead to a fascinating conversation. And, and our, my relationship with this particular colleague is better today than it was yesterday because we had this conversation, which is, uh, which is really cool. Now, what that, about... I love that. Yeah, and it's it's yeah, and there's a lot there's a lot I could say about that, but it's it's um, those moments where you kind of own the things that that you wish you could take back. Uh, it makes me grateful for messing up because it, we can use those opportunities where we mess up. Usually, they will help us create stronger relationships if we can just get out of our own way and admit when we uh, when and and it's it's admittedly easier for me to do uh, in certain situations than others, and it's easier for me to have those apologetic conversations with certain colleagues than it is with others, but, but they're, uh, they're certainly, uh, they're certainly helpful. Now, I don't want to let us get away because I've got a lot of other questions for you, but I don't want to let us get away from how do we seek out opinions and feedback from other people in a way that it will be helpful uh, for, um, for um, the self-awareness equation. Let me give a, a pretty simple tool, but it's a tool that I yeah. think uh, almost all uh, feedback learning and thought leadership totally misses. So we spend a lot of time thinking about how to get feedback and reading books and doing courses. But what we discovered with our self-awareness unicorns is most of us are missing an even more critical question. When we ask them, how did they get feedback? Who did they get it from? You know, What made these people different? We discovered that they actually had a very small feedback circle. It was usually less than uh, five people, usually closer to, the, to three. And these were the people that they were sort of constant, well, not constantly, but frequently going back for, to get feedback from. So it wasn't a one-time thing, but it was a habit they built over time, whether it was you know bi-weekly, monthly, quarterly, and so on. But it was regular. And as we delve down to say, wow, that's really interesting because I thought they would be asking for feedback from literally everyone, we discovered this thing, the secret, 
And it was that to get feedback from someone in a way that's helpful, actionable, empowering, supportive, they, the feedback giver, have to meet two criteria. The first is uh, we have to believe that they have our best interests at heart. It doesn't have to mean that they're, you know, if it's at work, our best friend at work or our closest friend in life, it just has to be a sense that they're on our side. The second criteria is we have to believe that they will be ready, willing, and able to tell us the truth, especially when it's hard to hear. And if you think about it, and as I thought about it in my own life, there are not a lot of people that meet both of those criteria. Because in some sense, you know, if we we have an uncritical lover, for example, uh, they're going to tell us all the great things about ourselves and shy away from the tough stuff that we we deserve and need to hear. If we have um, an unloving critic, that's going to be someone who will, uh, you know, has a, an ulterior motive, doesn't like us, and might use feedback as a weapon that we can't trust. So the key, it turns out, is to find loving critics. And I would suggest, you know, to everybody who's listening and watching that you don't have to get all five at once. If if you can start with one person, one person at, at work or in life that meets both of those criteria and figure out what is a habit that works for me, it can be absolutely transformational. Now, when I think about the two uh, elements of finding a loving critic, so they have your best interest at heart and they have to be willing to tell you the truth. From my perspective, it seems like it would be easier to figure out who has your best interest at heart, but it seems a lot harder to get people to tell you the truth. And I I wonder who is more responsible for getting honest feedback? Is it the receiver or is it the giver? Because it seems to me like it's more on the shoulders of the receiver and how they show up and how they ask and invite the feedback and how, how they respond when they're actually receiving that feedback that's going to dictate whether they keep getting it and whether it becomes more accurate. Would that be true? It is. And to build on that, that means that we have almost total control over this. Even though we're fighting, you know, the effect I mentioned earlier where other people don't like to tell us the truth because it's uncomfortable and, you know, human humans don't like that very much. But that's what makes it so important to find people that fit both of those categories. To your point, though, it's not always easy to find people that are honest with us. And yeah. what I would encourage people to think about is they don't have to have you know, necessarily given you direct critical feedback in the past, but everybody has, everybody has these friends and these colleagues that they're the, they're the one person who's willing to say the hard thing. You might have seen them, you know, do that in a meeting when the group was going down the wrong path and they were like, uh, excuse me, wait a minute, even though it was hard or it felt inconvenient. Or even your friends. Think about the friends that will tell you that your new jeans are not the best look for you (laughs) or the new haircut (laughs) that you got. Like those people exist. Um, And I agree with you. I think the loving part is the easiest part. Most in most cases, because we can really trust our gut, and hopefully we surround ourselves with people that support us. But I think it's it's really being thoughtful about who we believe will be willing to tell us the truth. So, what are some things that the unicorns do to create those honest pa- pathways? Then, so I think it comes down to who they pick first of all. But I I tell a story and insight about an executive that I coached. We can call her Kim. And when I first started working with her, uh, her boss, who who was um, in charge of the company, took me into his office and said, I need to tell you that uh, Kim is probably going to be fired if she doesn't turn around her behavior. And I said, well, what's her behavior? And he, you know, he went into a lot of detail, but in essence, he was telling me that she would just totally lose it in meetings. And, you know, usually it was when people were maybe like questioning something that she was trying to do or questioning her. And as I got to know Kim, what I discovered was, you know, she really, she had no idea that her behavior was coming across as uh, arrogant or or uh, inflexible. She was actually someone who lacked confidence. Deep down on the inside, she was in all those meetings saying, I don't even know why I'm here. Like all of these people are so much better and smarter and greater than I am. 
And, and that's an example of where what, what we feel to your point in our intentions can be so different than how we're coming across to other people. So what Kim did is she found uh, three to start loving critics. I was one of them because it was literally my job. And then she picked two peers of hers that were in, you know, these large meetings that she kept getting feedback on to understand. So the first thing she did is she sat them down and said, um, she gave them the context and it was very vulnerable. It, It was, I never knew this was an issue. I am completely committed to resolving it. I don't, you know, I don't want to be this person and I know I can't be this person for the organization. And um, she said, but I'm, you know, I'm asking, I know that what I'm asking you is not small. It's like small, medium, but it's to, to chat with me for 10 or 15 minutes every month, knowing that I'm trying to work on keeping my cool in meetings. Don't think, don't tell me now, take the night to think about it. And sure enough, lo and behold, especially when you give people a choice for doing something, the other two came back uh, the next day and said, we're in. What do you want us to do? So Kim asked them to um, take specific notes whenever they were in a meeting with her on what was working, what wasn't working, what they thought she didn't see. And then she would take them out. It was a you know big office building. This is in the before times. Um, <laughs> she would take them to a cafe that was just right at the bottom in their lobby and, and say, so as you know, I've been working on keeping my cool in meetings. Tell me what you've seen in the last you know 30 days. And they would give her the readout. And uh, again, to another point you made, Kim would not argue. She would not defend. She would accept the premise of their feedback as true to them regardless of what she was going to do about it and say, thank you. And by the way, that's how the conversations were 15 minutes. So she did this over, uh, you know, really at, at month six or so was when she was starting to, to completely understand what was happening. It was her feeling triggered that she didn't deserve to be there. Essentially. That was the common theme. She, she said, every time I get feedback from my loving critics on this, it's when I'm feeling this. So she started experimenting with new ways to show up. Um, one of them was, I just loved this. She she would take a mental Valium before all of the meetings she knew were going to be hard. And lo and behold, she was able to start changing. And it was slowly at first, but she started to find what worked and what didn't work. And by the end of our work together, over about 12 months, her boss called me into his office and said, what did you do with Kim? And I said, well, first of all, I didn't do this. Kim did this. And Kim made a decision to see herself clearly and try a different way. And then he told me, this is one of the most amazing kind of conversations I had had up until that point. He said, she went from being the person that was at risk of her job to being literally my most valuable member of my team. And so that's the power, truly, of loving critics. And hopefully along the way, that that gave some some practical suggestions about how to do it. But I would say yeah. it doesn't have to be the way Kim did it. it. It can be whatever works for you. Yeah, no, that's great. And one of the things I'm really taking away from this conversation is that it is such a learnable skill. And I don't think I would have thought that before this conversation. So it's very empowering. Uh, Carol Dueck would be really proud, I think. And uh one of the things I worry about, Tasha, is if you are focusing the, on what you want the feedback about and you're getting people to be hypersensitive to pay attention mm-hmm. for it, it almost seems like it make the problem worse than it is. That's a fair, that's a very fair concern and question. Um, let me tell you just one quick story and then kind of uh, respond. The story is I had a good friend in graduate school who was working with a professor and um, she asked the professor at the end of the semester to give her some feedback, like what sh- you know, what's not working, what is working, really kind of broad brush questions. And instead of telling my friends how she could be a better teaching assistant or how she could contribute to discussions in her classes more, the professor honed in that my friend was wearing the wrong color foundation, the wrong color makeup. And, you know, it really wasn't doing her any favors. 
And my friend was so stupefied that she just sort of like left the conversation and scratched her head and said, what just happened? This has also been true in my coaching work. I find that when we ask, when we ask our loving critics for general feedback, we're at risk of not hearing something that's truly helpful to us. And they're at risk of really kind of starting to second guess themselves. Like what's on the table here? I mean, should I be commenting about your wardrobe or you just ask? And they might ask for clarification, which is great. But that's why I tell people to always go in with a hypothesis. So the hypothesis could either be, you know, a piece of negative feedback that you're trying to better understand, or it could even be, how am I doing in a skill that I know will be successful given where I want to go next in my career or or at home, right? What is a skill that I know I need to have to have uh, great relationships and, and a great life? And from there, you know, if to your point, you're worried that you're missing something, you can always add at the end of the conversation, you know, thank you so much. This has been incredibly helpful. Is there anything that I didn't ask you for feedback about that you think I should know? Or is there anything else you want to share with me in the same spirit that we've been talking about so far that that you feel could really help me that I might not know? And and to me, that's kind of the best of both worlds is it gives them the chance to to tell us what we didn't think to ask about, but it keeps us in charge of our journey. That is brilliant advice. I love that. I'm going to start to apply that right away. I actually, about a year and a half ago, I have one of the Unleashed guests that we had asked me for open-ended feedback on the interview. And this was via email. And so I didn't know where the parameters started and ended. And I gave some feedback and I don't think it landed very well. And it would have been so much more helpful. In hindsight, I would have clarified a little bit. And I can see how it would have been a lot more impactful and helpful if the guest would have clarified what they were looking for themselves. So I, yeah, I feel that. I feel that. Now, here's something I've never That's done. That's a great example. Yeah. And I, so here's something I've never done before, Tasha, is I've never had a conversation with a colleague or a friend and asked them, would you like to become more self-aware? And the reason I am saying that, where does the responsibility begin and end in terms of us helping people that have not asked for it if they want to become more self-aware? Like, What should we be doing with our most beloved colleagues to help them on this journey? Let me, let's start with the hardest colleagues. So the the people that are just getting in their own way, everybody sees it, they don't see it. And and again, it's not their fault because humans are wired. We're almost wired by default to not be especially self-aware. So thinking about, do I want to broach this with this person? There are a couple things to think about. Number one, uh, am I willing to accept the worst case scenario? And that that can that can be very different depending on who it is. If it's a colleague or an employee or a boss, the worst case scenario can look very different. It could be, you know, the employee quits, the colleague never speaks to me again, the boss fires me. But I do think we have to go into these conversations with our eyes wide open because we are taking a risk, and it it doesn't always work. Um, but at the same time, you know, if if we accept that worst case scenario, proceed to the next question. The next question is, um, am I the right person to be giving them this feedback? And there's a lot of things that can be behind this, but, but I truly believe this is almost like a gut level decision. Has this person listened to me in the past? Um, do we have trust built up? Do they, am I confident they don't think I have ulterior motives or I'm just being a mean person? Those are, those are sort of the two starting questions. Then I would start to think about if I decide to proceed and I'm willing to accept the worst case scenario, how can I time the conversation and have it in a way that will be most likely to get through to them? So the first is timing. This is something, this is a principle that I've followed in my executive coaching forever. I don't work with people who aren't feeling some degree of pain or frustration, or even just a feeling that they could be more or they could be doing more than what they're doing. And not because I'm you know, a mean person, but because yeah. I know that pain motivates, pain clarifies, pain strengthens our commitment to, to potentially seeing ourselves in new and different ways. 
And um, that's why I say waiting for some kind of expression from them, whether or not they know that they caused, you know, whatever's happening is that something isn't quite right. So that's a really good place to start. It's even better if you're, if you want to be patient enough to wait for them to ask you a question like, oh man, you know, that sales meeting, that just did not go the way I was expecting. You can be like, oh, interesting. So that leads to the third piece of advice I'd give. And this is maybe I'll come back to an article that I wrote about this that maybe we can make available to your um, to your audience just because there's so much more to it. But the third thing is to, when you talk to them, don't use the word feedback. And that's really counterintuitive, but I would counter that yeah. by saying, how did you feel? How do we all feel when someone says, can I give you some feedback? It's the worst yep, feeling in the world. And, uh, yeah, it, yeah, yeah, it's triggering. It makes, me, it makes me defensive immediately. Immediately and scared, right? Like this person is going to tell me that I'm a fundamentally terrible person. So instead, I would encourage, I, I learned this from my friend Marshall Goldsmith, I would encourage people to, to really focus on the future. So to say, don't use feedback, say, you know, I really, I, I can see why you'd be frustrated about this. I support you. I want you to be successful. I do have a like one or two observations that I would be so happy to give you that that you might think about in the future. And immediately, it's a totally different conversation. And then you can yeah. say, you know, next time, what if you tried this? Not even next time do this, but next time what if you tried this? Cuz what you're trying to do is plant the seeds for them to then go through that journey themselves. And as tempting as right. it is to just give advice, you know, do this, do this, do this, that is a way to not get through to people in, in my experience. Right. Yes, that's some more just brilliant advice, Tasha. I'm already imagining how it, could, it would be the neural pathways a person would be creating, yeah. thinking about what they might try next, just that, that internal, that intrinsic reinforcement, if that would be the right phrase for it, that's great. Now, something else that I, I just, you find what you look for. And ever since I read the book and I was excited about this conversation, elements and examples of self-awareness have just been everywhere. And here's the other one that, I, that I've come across is I wonder how often is self-awareness misdiagnosed? And what I mean by that is all of the times that we do something and we know in an instant that that's not what we wanted to say, that's not what we intended. We, we can just tell that we offended somebody and we go away from that conversation, the, the receiver or the recipient, if we don't come back to that, will think perhaps Jeff is very uh, lacking in self-awareness when in fact, I'm not, I'm acutely aware of it. I just don't feel comfortable to go back and, and, and mend that fence, I suppose, or build that bridge in between it. Is there anything that you've come across? Cause I think it takes a lot of courage and a lot of vulnerability for somebody to admit, Hey, Tasha, I'm so sorry. I, I think I did something yesterday that I'm not proud of, or it might not have been received in the way I had wanted. Is there anything that you would uh, give for people in terms of advice that would make having that courageous conversation somehow just a little bit easier? I love that question. Um, it does take courage and a tolerance of at least some level of discomfort to have those conversations. I go back to what I learned from my mother, who, in addition to being just awesome is a very successful entrepreneur. She she when when she and my dad got divorced, she was a single mom and she grew she started and grew uh the first school in the United States that trained and certified nannies to be put in in you know the homes of dual earners or single parents. And so she's just a wealth of knowledge. And the thing that she always told me, whether I wanted her to or not, and always told everyone that worked with her was, you know, it's really simple. If you mess up, you fess up, you stand up, and you clean it up. And that in some way is like a four-part process. I, I started to think about this, you know, as an adult, and I was like, wow, that's actually very, very practical and very illuminating. So fessing up, you know, you start the conversation and just say, you can even share what your intention was. And say, but it was very clear to me when I walked away from that conversation that um, it did not have the intended effect. And I want to tell you, I'm sorry. And don't don't say, I'm sorry you feel that way. I'm sorry if you felt bad. Just say, I'm sorry. 
Um, so you're showing them the behavior, you're fessing up, you're standing up and you're saying, I'm sorry, and then you're cleaning it up. And there's a lot of different ways you can do that that will frankly depend on what the situation is. Uh, you know, one example would be if you if if you're talking to someone and tension just got really high really fast. And and you know you contributed that to that, even if it wasn't a hundred percent. You could say, um, so here's some things that I'm gonna try to do if that ever happens again. Do you have any other ideas for me? You know, is there and and usually, especially since everything goes both ways, then it can become a productive conversation between both of you where you're partnering to anticipate that in the future. And and I've I've it, when I followed that formula both with colleagues and in my personal life when I when I brave enough to do it, um, it, yeah. it it almost always leads to a stronger relationship and probably a reinforced sense of self awareness. Yeah, that is super advice. So motherly advice and practical advice for uh, how to handle it when you mess up. I uh, I, I listen really listen to love mom. That. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I could see how that would become a mod, a mantra for uh, for uh, for corporate culture. Um, I, I want to come back to something that you, that you that you mentioned earlier, and when this whole generation of the self and self the rise of self esteem and participation medals and everybody's a winner. I, it, it, it doesn't, it's not lost on me, I suppose, that managers have inherited a whole generation of people that have now, if you want to call it a coddled society, uh, how do managers try to affect that dynamic in the workplace? Because there's only so much we can do. We're not psychologists. How should managers be handling this generation of employee? I actually think it's simpler than it seems. Okay. I remember uh, I was in uh, Anchorage, Alaska, and I was doing a, a keynote for, for an organization there. And afterwards, um, you know, they took me on this tour, like through their facility and um, the, the, the highest ranking person there was, was telling me, he's like, and over here are all of the bikes that you millennials seem to think are okay to bring into the building and park inside. And I said, oh, that what? I'm sorry, that's happening. How, how many conversations have you had with them that your expectation is that they lock their bikes outside? He's like, none. And he said, like, indignantly. And I said, well, how are they supposed to know what your expectations are? And how, how do you get to be mad at them if you haven't been really clear and explicit? Because... From my and then he's like, uh oh, yep, I guess I and and he promised me that he would have that conversation and and I hope he did. But what I think that illustrates is I I've done quite a bit of research on generational differences, and a lot of them are more stereotypes on average than than facts or than real findings. Um, it does have to do sometimes with life stage. People who are younger tend to be a little bit more self-centered, but that has nothing to do with the generation they're in. We just have to think about if I have a different orientation towards life than somebody who's, you know, 20 years, 10 years my junior, I've got to make sure that the things that are obvious to me are clear to them. I happen to think that the the you know rising workforce right now you know gen like we had our first member of Gen Z elected in Congress like they're coming the Gen Zers the millennials are already here there are so many wonderful things about their generation their enthusiasm their energy their mission focus that it's almost like a crime for leaders to not make sure that the onus is on them to be explicit and then of course if if they continue to not follow those expectations when they've been made clear that becomes a progressive uh, process and conversation and you know maybe for some people it's not the right place for them and that's okay and and that could be done with compassion and and with strategy but I think it really starts with putting the onus on the manager to, to make expectations clear yeah, those are good good tips there, Tasha. Thank you. Uh, thanks for that advice. Uh, now, the universe can work in mysterious ways, and uh, don't ask me why. But I was I was channel surfing last week, and I came across an episode of the Oprah Winfrey Show from 1999. Nice. And the guest that <laughs> she had on this particular episode was Gary Zukov, and 
not all guests that Oprah has had on have stood the test of time. Um, I think we could, I think we could say that, but something that he said, it was just kind of serendipitous, uh, really caught my attention as it pertains to this conversation. And he said that all parts of you that you're not aware of end up making your choices for you. And I wanted to get your thoughts about that quote. Well, I'm going to write it down after we talk because I think that's brilliant and it's exactly right. That's why it's always better to know. Just because you know something doesn't mean that you have to change who you are. It might mean that you decide that for your own success and and self-interest and well-being that you are going to experiment with something new. Um And it might even be like feedback on something that you just don't think you can change. I tell a story about that in Insight about an entrepreneur who, you know, apparently was the worst communicator ever he learned. And he believed that that wasn't something he could work on, but he was still in charge and he was able to, you know, essentially tell people that to be like, listen, you might have a baby and come back to the office and I'm not going to say anything. But I want you to know that has no that, that that's in no way reflective of how much I care about you, even if I sometimes don't know the right ways to show that. So even yeah. something as small as that, he started to make his own choices. He wasn't letting um, you know this this blind spot that he recently learned getting in the way of his relationships with his team. So I think as long as we think about the universe of options being more, than just immediately changing to suit what one person thinks of us. That's, um, you know, I actually can't think of a better way to explain why self-awareness is so empowering than that quote. Yeah, thank you. Last question I have for you is, uh, you mentioned right off the start of the conversation, you have been immersed in this this work for a decade now. Uh, The book uh, Insight came out five years ago. Who could have known that half of that five years would have been in a pandemic? Is the world becoming more self-aware or less? Like I've just been dying to ask you that. Are we winning here or are we losing? So good news. Uh, We're actually collecting some data right now to, you know, begin to answer that question. But I saw sort of two parallel paths during uh, the pandemic uh, and, and, you know, kind of where we are now. There was a group of people who sort of took the opportunity, whether it was because they had more time, more mental space, you know, just less stress in commuting and their daily lives to examine what really mattered to them. Um, one example, I, I have a, a an online course on self-awareness and we had like our best sales period during 2020. So it sh- that shows me that there are some people who are really kind of you know, hate to say like turning crisis into opportunity, but really um, trying to figure out how they can build a better life when all of that was over. But I also feel like the large majority of us, especially because we've been so cut off from social interaction, you know, that was like a good two years for for most people, depending on where you live, and maybe even to this day, depending on where you are in the world. Um, we lost a little bit of our social mojo. And, you know, the, the the third example you gave is such a good example, but I see, you know, I'm seeing more people like sitting through green arrows on roads than I used to see before. And I think, you know, the good news is that our social muscles really are like muscles and we just have to keep using them and, and try to be as compassionate to ourselves and other people as we can. But, you know, for those of us who didn't take the time to get ahead, we might be catching up, but to your point earlier, this is one of the most learnable skills there is. And so maybe maybe it's time to focus on external self-awareness for a little while and, and you know, really reap those benefits. Yeah. And I hope you're right. I hope that we use this for us. We can't change the past, but we can certainly use how we uh, and, and adapt how we leverage it. And the other thing that you said there is bang on. If somebody cuts in front of you at the Costco line and takes the last two samples, we have to make some grace and extend some kindness to them and not make too many assumptions because we've all been through a lot. We're all fighting our own, our own battle. So what a great reminder. 
There's one thing I wanted to share with you, um, mostly just because audiences seem to love this and I would hate to not mention it. So this was, um, it's a 14 item subset of our um, 70 plus item, you know, validated self-awareness assessment. And when the book came out, we put together, we call it the insight quiz. So it's 14 questions you fill out for yourself and then you send it to someone who knows you well and they fill out 14 questions and you get the report is, it's really simple. It's like a high level, you know, where are you internally and externally? And then here are a couple of things you can do to, to support that. Um, and it's totally yeah. free. We, we have just kept supporting it because like hundreds of thousands of people just have yeah. taken it and love it. Tasha, it has been such a joy to talk to you today. I have learned oh, so much you. and I cannot wait to listen to this and put some of the things that we've talked about. Cause there's a lot of things we talked about today. They're not in the book. And I love that because it's going to give people some, uh, some added incentive to read the book and then apply some of the things from the conversation today. So thank you very much. My pleasure. My absolute pleasure. And thank you for such great questions. Yeah, you're very welcome. And in the interim, I hope everybody can use this to become more self-aware. And through that personal journey, it'll help everybody around you. Uh, until next time, thank you everybody for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe to our YouTube channel or wherever your favorite podcasts are found. And if you're part of a leadership team and you know that your organization is capable of even better performance, please reach out to us at unleashresults.com for a conversation and learn more about how we might help unleash the potential of your team and organization.